Hi folks, welcome to Deep Dive Radio. I'm your host, Alan James. This show is dedicated to revealing the truth that lies beneath the surface. Are you ready for the truth? Join me now for another exciting episode of Deep Dive Radio. Hi folks, welcome to Deep Dive Radio. I'm your host, Alan James. I got to sit down with a very special man named Dr. Harvey Risch, who's a professor of epidemiology at Yale University. But not only that, He's also written 400 peer-reviewed scientific papers that have been cited by over 51,000 scientists throughout the world. And I got to sit down with him and talk about some very important topics like the pandemic, COVID-19, therapeutics, all kinds of things. So we're going to have that interview right after the break. So stick around. Listen, if you're worried about the spike protein after taking the COVID-19 vaccine, or maybe you had the virus, maybe you have a friend that got the vaccine and is shedding, I've got great news for you. You see, we've partnered up with The Wellness Company, and they have a product called Spike Support. Now, Spike Support has six key ingredients in it, one of them being natokinase. Now, natokinase has been shown to dissolve clots that may be caused by the spike protein, either by the virus or the vaccine itself. And it's also a staple food for centuries for the Japanese. Now, the Japanese have a life expectancy longer than any other country. Now, again, these aren't just uh, Hollywood actors with white coats on trying to sell you a product. These are real doctors, Peter McCullough, James Thorpe, Harvey Risch, and Robert Seek. They're some of the most published doctors in the world in their fields. And they developed this product just for you, okay? So I take it every single day. And if you want to get it, just go to deepdiveradio.com and hit the Spike Support tab, and you'll get 10% off. All right. So until then, stay healthy with Spike Support. So long now. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Rish. Uh, it's so nice to see you. And uh, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to join me. So let's, why don't we tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what, you, what you're all about and maybe even the wellness company and all that. So I'm a, a professor now emeritus of epidemiology at Yale University. I've had a 40-plus year career in epidemiology, and I'm one of the senior people in the field, in particular cancer epidemiology, the study of the causation and distribution of cancer. And I got into this by, after being a math and biology major in college, I went to medical school in San Diego. And, um, you know, being a math person, a quant of sorts, uh, I ended up doing a, uh, we had in UCSD in San Diego, we had a thesis requirement in medical school. And I ended up spending most of the last year doing research on a, a mathematical neurology project. And I kind of felt at that point that I was more interested in being an academic doctor than a practicing one. And so I went and got a PhD in, in, in Chicago in what is mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics. And I um, and I got into doing cancer research there. And so most of my career after that point was in cancer research. First uh, eight years uh, at the University of Toronto and then coming to Yale. And, um, and, I, and that's what I did until COVID. And, but what happened is at the beginning of COVID, I'm a, a member of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering. And the academy struck up a, a committee to help the, the uh, governor get out of the end the lockdowns. And so we formed this committee. It wasn't the governor's committee. It was a special one of the academy to uh, think out of the box. Uh, 
And so there was me, another epidemiologist, a cardiologist, uh, a clinical psychologist, uh, a physicist, a jet plane engine designer who knows about airflow things. Um, we were, you know, really kind of motley and 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 open and you know thinking about things. And my job was to look at early treatment, outpatient treatment, and that's how I got involved in hydroxychloroquine um, studies and the evidence and how I wrote the paper that became the foundational paper on hydroxychloroquine, its benefit, its safety, and its efficacy. Uh, that was in May of 2020. That kind of got propelled to public notice and me into public notice. I, I'm really impressed. I'm looking at uh, my laptop here, uh, 400 peer-reviewed scientific research papers, uh, which been cited by other scientists more than 46,000 times. That's pretty impressive. Actually, it's more than 51,000 by now. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. academics, we worry about this. It's so inconsequential, but that's what we worry we about. And I bring that up because um, what's been going on with uh, the propaganda and the, the disinformation of the mainstream media to people that are coming out against the narrative that they all wanted us to hear. And so I like to bring that point up as that these people that are talking about this, they're not slouches. They're not charlatans. They're the real deal. And I, I'm listening to them. I think I was used to be on Facebook uh, when you first started, uh, when this first started. And I said, we should be listening to that man. And, you know, your picture, you know, it's, but I'm not on there anymore. I got off of there because, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, you don't. Well, it is true. It's true. You know, when doctors Bhattacharya and Kaldorf and Gupta um, were classified as fringe epidemiologists, that was just a, a standard smear. Those are very senior academics. Peter McCullough is a world-established cardiologist. You know, I'm known the world over in my field in, in cancer epidemiology. Uh, we are all normative senior scientists, and and to cast us as not knowledgeable or fringe, or you know worse, is is just name calling and censorship. It has no relationship to anything that we've said. And furthermore, I would say it's all irrelevant, because the Karl Popper, the philosopher of science in the early 1950s, made the observation that studies about what scientists believe have no relation to studies of how nature behaves. If you want to know how nature works, let us direct you to the papers, but go read the actual papers, read the science, read the research, figure it out for yourself. That's what we're all forced to do. And that's what everybody has to do now in order to know objective, objectively about what everything is. And, and that's what we have aspired to do. But it's a free for all, honestly, because of all the bias and, and, and conflicts of interest. And, yeah. you know, so as much as we are all senior people, you don't have to take that as a reason to believe us. Go read the papers and see if what we say is correct. And that's exactly what I did. I went, uh, I filed a lot of, you know, the stuff that, you know, Dell Big Tree and the High Wire, is, they're my heroes uh, over there for what they've been doing. And, you know, they have, they send me every Monday, they send me the papers and I go to the CDC or I go to whatever, and they're doing a great job over there. And that's, I, one of the places I saw you, I think you were, yeah, you were on a show, weren't you on a show? I think maybe early on I was. Yeah, yeah, I saw you on, I saw you on Epoch Times. Uh, I believe you're on that with uh, Jan Jakelik. Yes, uh, three, yeah. three or four times. Yeah, yeah I, like, I like Jan. He's, I think he's one of the best. You know, the management of the pandemic, what are your thoughts on how it was, I mean, we kind of, 
touched on it a little bit, but if you want to uh, extrapolate a little bit more on how you thought it was managed. I know what I, I feel like, but I'd like to hear what an expert has to say how it was managed. Well, the pandemic management of a respiratory virus pandemic was laid out in paper in 2006 by Tom Inglesby and others, including Don Henderson, who was the person who eradicated smallpox from the planet. And they laid out the principles that apply to a respiratory pandemic, what one can and, and cannot do that work. They said lockdowns do not work. People who are actively sick should stay home that closing airports don't work, that uh, uh, masking does not work uh, to prevent the spread of the infection, and, and so on. And six days after the pandemic emergency was declared in 2020, our federal government National Security Administration took control of the management and reversed every one of those prescriptions that was known from public health as to how to manage a respiratory pandemic. And we proceeded to do the exact opposite in every respect and for unknowable reasons that we have only begun to work out through FOIA documents that have been obtained over the, the three plus years. So we know that this has not been public health management, it has been national security management. The National Security Administration declared the virus not to be a pandemic virus, but to be a bioweapon. It therefore declared the vaccines to be countermeasures. And when in under those terms, public health doesn't even apply. What applies is national security considerations from a completely different playbook. And so our public health agencies were essentially forced to comply with the national security agenda that had its goals in mind rather than public health goals in mind. And now we have to address why did our national security administration have goals and methods and programs to apply to the pandemic that were not the active understood public health measures of managing a pandemic? That is the questions that we're dealing with now. Mm. Uh, yeah, and it, it just brings me to a graphic I saw on the high wire just recently. He showed this graphic of the Omicron variant, the Omicron variant, where it completely was detached from the normal spread of when there's a, a variant. It wasn't even, did you see that graphic? No, but I've been following along the clonal evolution of, of the various strains and substrains of COVID that Omicron branched out early and was kind of quiescent for a few months before it became apparent in, in late fall of uh 2022, right? Uh, the years yeah. are starting to blur. Yeah. And 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 was a radical departure in its virulence from the, the previous strains, and it was in, in additionally infectious, and that is called Muller's ratchet, which is that viruses, respiratory viruses, seek to find an optimal niche for their reproduction. And what that means is that they don't want to kill their hosts. They want to make their hosts sick enough that they're symptomatic, but not so symptomatic, not so symptomatic that they stay home. If people who are sick stay home, then they only infect their family members, which is only small numbers. If they're less sick, but still coughing and sneezing, they go to work, they go to the grocery store, they go to social events, they go to sporting events, they go to entertainment things, and all of those provide much better spreading coverage 
for the virus. So that is the optimal niche for people to be symptomatic, but not very sick. And that's what Omicron got to when, when it established itself. It mutated, fortunately for us, into that stage and superseded all of the much more virulent previous strains. And that's what we've been left with. And it is very unlikely that all of the subsequent Omicron strains will, will ever get out of that place in the niche because that is what promotes its reproduction. And that is, is how it stays around as an endemic virus, by maintaining its ability to stay in its optimized niche. I see. I mean, there's some speculation you hear um, different people saying, well, um, was this, there was this released on purpose, was Omicron separately released on purpose? Do you have any thoughts on that, that concept at all? We don't know the motivation for how it got out, but we do know we have essentially uh, as good scientific proof, evidential proof as there is, that this was a laboratory engineered virus. That it didn't start out with that, but it was engineered. And we know this because there's a long sequence in the virus that could not happen by chance that is also in a Moderna patent from 2017 and perhaps years before that, that for a, a gene product that's involved in cloning the virus and making it infectious in human lung airway cells. And so we know that, and, and the, you know, the authors of, of these papers doing the gain-of-function research have referred to their studies as gain-of-function research, and they published this in 2015 and 16. We know that this has all been engineered viral research that got out sometime in 2019. We don't know when. It certainly was not December of 2019. It probably wasn't November or October. We know that there were already positive uh, blood samples in Italy in September or October of 2019. That means it had to have been before that. We know that there were people coming back from China with very severe respiratory infections, that people didn't know what virus it was, thought maybe it was flu, that was happening in perhaps July of 2019 yeah. and August of 2019. So it's entirely possible that this happened in that time period, but was unrecognized. By the time we did start to recognize it in early 2020, it was popping up in disparate areas at the same time. It was popping up in Washington State and New York and Italy and, and so on. You can't have a virus that starts in one location and suddenly starts growing in multiple places. It grows in one place. It becomes a, a, observable as an epidemic in one place. Then it spreads to adjacent areas and so on. Well, sure, it's going to spread by airplane and train and cars and so on also, but it spreads the way people spread, meaning that the radius of where people work and live and things like that first, and then you start to see other satellite communities affected. That's how epidemics work. This didn't start like that. This started with simultaneous pop-ups in, in widely disparate places, and some of them genetically distinct. The Italian strains that were being observed at the beginning were distinct from the Washington State strains, which means they had to have evolved somewhere else together and 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 devolved apart, you know, in, in order to do that. So this is obviously, uh, when you stop to think about it, something that happened before any of, of our popular wisdom says that this came out about in December or January of 2019, 2020. It's from before that, but we know that this was lab engineered. We'll have more with Harvey Risch right after the break. Stick around. Hey folks, you know, every time you pay your cable bill, 
that you're financing the enemy, the mainstream media, and the fake news? Instead, why don't you help out the little guy that doesn't have a conflict of interest, that's not handcuffed by big pharma and big tech? So unlike mainstream media, you're going to get the truth. So if you like hearing the truth, and you want to help us bring it to you every Sunday, then simply go to deepdiveradio.com and donate now. All right, we're back. I want to go. I want to talk a little bit about because you're starting to see people again masking up, and uh, I don't know if that's a subject you want to talk about. But uh, it's it's it, to me it's I shake my head because what I've found out about it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can uh, shed some light on that. But it sounds like to me what I've read: the virus is too small. It passes through the mask. It it bacteria is much bigger. And it will catch bacteria, but viruses are so tiny that they go right through as an aerosol. Do I have that right? Yes. You know, people say, well, surgeons wear masks, so why shouldn't we? Well, surgeons wear masks to prevent bacteria and droplets from spreading and getting into open surgical wounds or surgical incisions. And that's appropriate for that. respiratory viruses don't colonize surgical incisions very much. So there's no big worry there. Um, And so extrapolating to respiratory pandemic infections is useless in in that analogy. The virus is indeed orders of magnitude too small compared to the holes in the various masks, whether they're um, N95 masks or, or commonplace surgical masks or anything similar. They're way too small, and they, by and large, go around the edges of the masks anyway. And this is all borne out. This is all theory. You know, as I've said multiple times, the masks are like having a chain link fence to keep out mosquitoes. You know, it's just the the physics, the engineering is wrong. And all of that is theory. But the empirical evidence is the studies that have looked at whether the masks prevent the spread of infection, meaning what's called source control, not whether masks prevent the person wearing the mask, protect the person wearing the mask, but whether they prevent the infection from spreading, show that masks do not prevent infection from spreading. There was uh, a study done in uh, military barracks in the US that showed the masks didn't do anything. There was a study in Denmark that showed the masks didn't appreciably prevent anything. The Bangladesh study, which was a study of um, communities, villages, not a study of individuals, showed essentially a negligible benefit with masking uh, that went to zero when it was reanalyzed properly. And so there's no evidence. And of course, all of the previous studies in the the inf- uh, influenza eras about masks that didn't work then either. So this has long been known that masks don't work for respiratory viruses, that even if you think that some of covid isn't just particles, but is but is stuck onto water droplets, and the masks do block water droplets, at least the ones trying to go through the mask. That's such a small component of how much virus gets out in each breath that it's a negligible consideration for the masking. So essentially, we know that the masks don't work for the in- intention of preventing spread of the infection. And, you know, people basically have had so much anxiety generated because of the propaganda war to create anxiety, to create a malleable, uh, uh, you know, and and uh, and credulous population, 
that they would take whatever was being recommended to them to do about dealing with treatment, uh, you know, treatment and, and medications and vaccination and so on. That it just shows the, the credulousness of average people under a propaganda war of fear. And that's what we've been subjected to. And this propaganda war was orchestrated not just by the um, National Security Council and the CIA and our government actors and our public health establishments, the CDC and FDA and so on. We know this because this was the agenda of Event 201 and all of the previous previous uh, pandemic scenario management symposia held on almost a yearly basis, something like 20 times, all calibrated not to deal with the public health measures of managing a pandemic, but something else, as we learned, when the military aspect of managing this pandemic took precedence in early 2020. Yeah, just amazing. And so for me, I knew a lot of what you're talking about because of the digging I've done. So I'm when I had to travel and knowing this stuff, knowing this information, it was infuriating for me. I mean, as you as a doctor, and you probably had to comply when you traveled. Uh, what did, what were your thoughts? What, did you get angry? I mean, I would have been, I'm a doctor. I'm, I study this stuff, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm a little bit of a hothead, but, you, you know. Well, I'd say, you know, for the last some years, I haven't done much airplane travel, and it's been mostly within driving distance travel. Okay. So I've, I've just driven for the last three years. I've just driven almost everywhere oh. that I've needed to go, you know. So it was my choice about how I was going to manage my pandemic management. Yeah. Well, you know, I flew to I flew to Vietnam during the thing and I stopped over in Hong Kong and it was I tried to play the rebel. I wouldn't wear the mask. And so when they pulled when they pulled me off the uh, the airplane, they grabbed me and brought me to a, a, a remote area, you know, and I showed them I had a doctor's note saying that I cannot wear the mask safely. They didn't care. They didn't care. Um, and I said, okay, guys, I give. I'll wear the stupid mask. But it was, they were in my face. I mean, they were this close. I'm like, this, <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. I just don't get it, you know. Um, it, 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 but I get the propaganda. If you read the book uh, with Dr. Uh, Matthias Desmond, Wrote, uh, the totalitarianism, whatever that, I don't remember the title completely, but it's, you know, like they said, mass formation you know, or mass formation hypnosis or whatever term you want to put on it, you know. Well, I would, I would say that Desmond only has half of the picture in that term and its concept. What he's basically saying is that groups of people will amplify uh, small anxiety measures into large ones. And he's, what he doesn't say to any degree is that where those measures, those messages originally come from, need not be what we call endogenous to the group, but can be injected from outside the group and then get amplified by the anxiety. And in fact, essentially all of the COVID anxiety that's happened was injected from outside the group by federal government, by the media at the you know, control more or less of the federal government and the various agencies and by pharma. And so to blame people for their anxieties when this was a message 
that was inflicted by propaganda on them, I think is not fair to your average person. The people that were the victims of this propaganda campaign and whether the people themselves amplified it according to Desmet's theory is certainly possible that they did, but this came from outside people. People just didn't think up their anxieties and, and then amplify among their friends and family. They got propagandized through all of the major media Absolutely. to do that in the first place. Social media was every, bombarded in every direction. And then people were wiped out. Uh, you know, anything that was against the narrative on YouTube, on Facebook, you were eliminated. Uh, and, you know, I, I remember I posted right at the beginning, I posted on Facebook the poor woman that was injured uh, by the vaccine. And she she did a little phone video of herself shaking. Um, and so I posted it. They wiped it off. They took it right off. I said, you know, if you guys are thinking about getting a vaccine, maybe you should look at this first and wiped it right off. And I'm sure I got shadow banned after that. But, uh, you know, I, that was soon after that. I just that's enough. No more Facebook for me. So and, and it went across the board that way. It, it uh, you know, every, every they covered every aspect of media. And that's what what came from that is the alternative medias. You know, you got um, instead of YouTube, now you have Rumble and you have BitChute and, you know, where you can get uh, uncensored stuff. Thank goodness. Um, and and, you know, podcasters now. And you see what's happening in Canada right now. I just did a podcast on that coming out. Um, oh, I already it came out last week. Uh, they're seeing this. And so they want to, they got a new bill up there in Canada called C-18, which they want to stop. They want to like make it really difficult for podcasters to put this information out there. Because people are listening. They come home and we did it when we were kids. We turned on the TV after we got home from work. And we want to see what's happening in the news, CNN and CNSB, NBC and all the major networks. And we had little idea that there was, they were deceiving us in any way. We just thought, that's the truth. It's the news. It's America. We tell the truth. You know, and so... What I, that's I long gone. That, yeah. that, is, that is long gone. The corruption of our media is, is long exactly. gone. It happened 30 years ago when the journalism schools switched from objective reporting to postmodern um, Marxist activism reporting, when people had the realization that you, you could promote your political agenda by biased reporting, conflating opinion with fact, and so on. And that corrupted all of journal, all of the what had been nominally, maybe not completely unbiased, but at least nominally unbiased journalism to that point. And so that was just used in the service of the corruption of our society. All right, folks. Well, thank you for joining me for part one of my interview with Harvey Risch. That's all the time we have today, unfortunately, but we'll have part two in the coming weeks. So I'll see you next Sunday at 10 a.m. So long now.